Welcome to Art History Awesome. I'm your host, Amelia, and before we begin, I would like to apologize for not posting an episode uh, two weeks ago when I was supposed to, but listen, it was my birthday, I have family come out, like my friends threw me a surprise party, living my best life, and I didn't want to put out something that wasn't researched, so I skipped it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, so I, uh, I'm sorry. But there's an episode now, so let's enjoy that. Uh, this is going to be our first episode of Repatriation Nation. In terms of our history, repatriation is the return of art and objects to the people and or country of origin. Today, we will be talking about Moctezuma II's headdress. The theft of cultural objects is one of the most polarizing topics in cultural studies, not just art history. Examples of this plunder include the Roman sacking of Jerusalem in 70 CE to England taking tribal items from invaded African countries as fantastically discussed in that scene from Marvel's Black Panther. You know the one. I am personally an avid supporter of repatriation. While I love museums and the access they give to learning and expression and history, if a museum's collection is built on stolen objects, they should be treated like the criminals they are. Unfortunately, the situation is not so simple. There are a lot of politics involved with both sides, not to mention money and ego. But in general, there are two responses to repatriation requests. Yes or no. The two most famous examples of yes are the return of Nazi stolen art and efforts in American museum systems to return indigenous objects to tribes across North and South America. However, neither of these repatriation efforts were done out of kindness or a sense of accountability, at least not fully. They're enforced by law. Dozens of countries have come together to set guidelines for the treatment and return of Nazi looted art. This has culminated in many state and national laws, such as the Holocaust Act of 2009 in England. As for American Indians, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, was passed in 1990. While neither are perfect, the fact that any effort being, is being made is impressive. A no response, on the other hand, comes in two main forms. A hard yes with no excuses or explanation, or a no because. I am of the opinion that a flat no is at least honest, even if wrong. The no because responses are always full of half-assed excuses and more often than not overtly racist reasonings. Moctezuma II's headdress is, unfortunately, a no-because situation. Without further ado, let's begin. The conquering of the Aztecs by the Spanish is a complex, fascinating tale that gives some insight as to why Aztec art and objects are so rare. The dawn of the Age of Discovery in the 15th century CE began a long period of imperialism and colonialism in Europe. The first country to become a major player in the imperial race was Portugal, who arrived in Africa in the 15th century. Their colonies in Africa gave the Portuguese access to greater resources than any European country at the time. As their neighboring country, Spain quickly entered into competition with Portugal to become the greater power. However, by the time Spain gathered the money and resources to begin expansion, Portugal had majority control of the Indian Ocean. Forced to look elsewhere for their foreign wealth, Spain turned to the West. 
When this exhibition landed on the Yucatan Peninsula in 1517, a contingent land by Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba traveled into mainland Mexico and reached the edges of the Aztec territory, making official contact with the empire the same year. Although Aztec officials in Tenochtitlan knew of the Spanish arrival soon after this first contact, they kept it a secret from their people, drawing on their own history in attempts to understand who and what these outsiders were. Velazquez, their leader, began planning another expedition to mainland Mexico before Cordoba even returned. Velazquez's first choice for further exploration of inland Mexico was Hernán Cortés, a minor noble who had traveled to the New World at a young age. Cortés is probably the most well-known player in this story, so it might surprise you to know that he was not supposed to be involved at all. Right before Cortés was meant to depart, Velázquez pulled him off the campaign due to a growing mistrust of Cortés and his supporters. However, Cortés ignored these orders and led the excursion anyway, departing to Yucatán February 10, 1519. The success of this expedition was due in large part to Cortés's treatment of their indigenous allies. Cortés implemented a no-looting policy, clearly understanding that not plundering is a smart tactical move. As their march continued further inland towards the heart of the Aztec Empire, Cortés strengthened his force through conquest and alliance. The Telex Calticas, an indigenous group who managed to operate independent of the Aztec Empire, allied with the Spanish, for they too wanted to defeat the Aztecs. And as we all know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Cortes gained many native supporters, like the Tlax Calticas, simply because the Aztecs were so hated by those within and outside their control. Renewing their advance, the Spanish reached the Aztec capital city, Tenochtitlan, in November 1519. Cortes, knowing by now that his reputation preceded him, simply requested Moctezuma II, the current emperor, submit to Spanish rule. Unsurprisingly, Moctezuma II refused, beginning a brutal two-year battle over the center of Aztec power. First, the Spanish captured Moctezuma II when the Aztec leader invited them to the capital for negotiations. Unsurprisingly, the Spanish walked in and were like, you're a prisoner now. And I can only assume that Moctezuma II pulled a Detective Pikachu and was like, what? Unexpected. However, Cortez wasn't what you would call a forward thinker, so his plan essentially ended at capture the king. With no source of food or supplies because he was stuck in the palace at the center of an enemy city like a dumbass, he and his men were forced to retreat. But Cortez was not one to let a setback teeter him. His next plan involved Europe's favorite method of population control, smallpox. Nothing says colonialism like the spread of murderous disease. And to be fair, it worked. A little too well. Here's the thing about disease. It's not known for doing what it's told. Even though the Aztecs were vulnerable to smallpox, so were the Spanish because vaccines weren't invented yet. And let's be real, Good medicine and hygiene was still a few centuries away for the Europeans. So while the disease crippled the Aztec population, it took a chunk out of the Spanish as well. After this second failure, Cortes took a moment to think about Tenochtitlan and what kind of city it was. One surrounded by water. 
Finally using his brain, Cortez and his men simply cut off all the waterways into the city, essentially starving the capital as they were when barricaded in the palace. This provided to be the winning strategy, and the Aztec capital finally fell. Now victorious, Cortez was forced to face an issue far worse than the Aztec enemies. Velazquez. Due to the fact that Velazquez demoted Cortez and removed him from the expeditions to mainland Mexico, Cortez's entire enterprise was technically unsanctioned by the Spanish government. To validate this action beyond monetary gain, Cortez turned to the next most important mission of Spain, the growth and spread of the Catholic Church. This conquest was a Christian enterprise because it destroyed a pagan civilization. And destroyed this civilization they did. The Templo Mayor, the central building of Aztec religious ceremony, was sacked, burned, and demolished. In its place, a church was erected that remains there today, the Metropolitan Cathedral of the Assumption of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven. Woo! That is a mouthful. And it still stands in Mexico City today. Additionally, Cortez's forces destroyed as many pagan art and objects as they could get their hands on. This included, but was not limited to, statues, monuments, ceremonial garb, and codices. The Spanish forces, both during and after the initial conquest, eradicated a myriad of Aztec cultural objects. Those that remain today have become exponentially more valuable, both to the Mexican people and foreign collectors. It is at this time Moctezuma's headdress leaves Mexico. According to Austrian media and representatives, this is the official story. The headdress was given as a sign of respect. Aztec Emperor Moctezuma presented gifts to conquistador Hernán Cortés in 1519, and among those objects was a beautiful headdress, according to historical records. Cortés sent the gifts back to his regent, Charles V of Spain, who was part of the royal Habsburg family based in present-day Austria, and in the ensuing 500 years, the headdress was lost, rediscovered, and altered in efforts of restoration. In the 1540s, merely 20 years after the Spanish victory, it was purchased from the conquistadors by the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria. Yet according to the Australian officials and the Weltmuseum Venn, the headdress was gifted to conquistadors, who in turn gifted it to Charles V of Spain, a member of the Habsburg royal family. The last piece of its kind Moctezuma II's headdress is one of the most controversial subjects in the ongoing debate of repatriation of Aztec objects to Mexico. This story is total bull****. While the general movements of the headdress seem to be correct, it was removed from Mexico in the 1520s or 30s by conquistadors, then came into Austrian possession by the 1540s. But the idea that this headpiece was given as a sign of respect is the most white savior, rewritten history piece of crap I've ever heard. You can't say something is a gift if you're holding the threat of death over the giver. That's not how gifts work. It's theft. Plain and simple. I will have a link to the article that quote is from uh, on the post for today's episode at AmeliaRose.com under the Art History Awesome tab. The entire thing is Austrian propaganda about why they should get to keep the headdress. 
what is most frustrating about this article is that on the surface, it seems to present an objective argument for why the headdress must stay in Austria. The author, Rick Kearns, is a poet journalist who has spent time exploring his indigenous roots. The article is published by Indian Country Today, an online news source who, according to their About Us page, quote, Indian Country Today is a daily digital news platform that covers the indigenous world, including American Indians and Alaskan natives. Indian Country Today is the largest news site that, that covers tribes and native people throughout the Americas, end quote. Within the article, Kearns references The Headdress of Moctezuma, The Feathered Art of Ancient Mexico, a documentary about the headdress and conservation efforts. Due to age and mishandling, feathers are starting to fall off the headdress at a fairly alarming rate. In this documentary, we learned there were two studies done on the headdress by Austrian and Mexican scholars. Both sides agreed that the headdress was too fragile and that in order to survive the vibrations of a flight across the world, a special case would have to be made for the feathered headpiece. However, creating this case is so cost prohibitive, no museum in Mexico can afford it. So, everyone agrees it needs to stay in Austria for the safety of the piece. Now, that sounds like a fair conclusion agreed upon by both parties. While unfortunate for Mexico, it's for the best of the object, right? In 2016, Professor of Art History at the University of Birmingham in London, Khadija von Zinnenberg Carroll, wrote a piece called The Inbetweenness of the Vitrine. Three Pererga of a Feather Headdress, about Moctezuma II's crown. On page 30 to 31, she discusses the case and the two studies done by Austria and Mexico. Quote, The vibration-proof design of the case and the mount resulted from the discovery that the headdress was losing many of the individual barbs that make up its feathers. They were found, to the horror of the conservators, lying on the sheet on which the headdress was previously supported. As well as defining the specifications of its new vitrine, the conservation scientists who analyzed the headdress also reported that the levels of vibration encountered in transporting it, by air, for example, to Mexico, could destroy its fine and brittle feathers. When the Museo Nacional de Arte in Mexico requested a loan of the headdress for its temporary featherwork exhibition, they are presented with a specialist engineering report which stated that a special vibration-proof case would have to be built to transport it to avoid damage. The cost of manufacturing such a case was, of course, prohibitively expensive for the Mexican Museum. Indeed, due to the cost of the required expertise, the Museo Nacional de Arte was only able to commission a separate independent engineering report with the assistance of the Mexican president's office. There was an air of conspiracy when I interviewed the key actors on this matter in Vienna in 2014. The head scientist advertising the conservation team had been both eager to participate in my research and vague about his availability. It was not until the end of our interview that he explained that he had to seek the museum's approval before speaking to me. He was one of the few who had met in a closed room of the Hofburg Palace to discuss the repatriation at the highest level of government. I wondered why the head scientist had to be briefed before he spoke about the topic. 
The former director, Christian Fest, was quick to say that it was the Mexican Museum that commissioned the controversial report from the counter-vibration expert directly. Ironically, this second report was prepared by the same Austrian engineering company that had prepared the first one for the Musée für Volkerkund. It is based on tests of the vibration in the gallery under different conditions, from a crowd of visitors and a glass cleaning to the effect of an airplane. All this can be mathematically predicted, and the more the vibration, the larger the container necessary to counter the vibration according to the laws of physics. The resulting document looks like an engineering report, but reads like a science fiction joke. On the last page, there is a drawing of the 300 meter long and 50 meter high airplane that would be necessary in the mathematic model to buffer the velocity of takeoff and landing to meet the conservation requirements set by Vienna. Since such an aircraft does not exist, it was deemed unreasonable and unaffordable for the Mexicans, hence the headdress could not be loaned and supported by scientific rationale, must remain a captive in its vitrine in Vienna. The case around the crown again inserted its inextricability from the object." End quote. Carroll perfectly sums up the issues with this report. One, the study commissioned by Mexico was done by the same people who did the study for Austria, meaning that it was not objective. Two, the cost prohibitive case requirements are set by the Austrian museum based on this study that they funded in an Austrian scientists. Three, the demand for this case and study assumes that Austria's museum practices are above and beyond those in Mexico. All in all, repatriation is an extremely tricky topic, especially in situations like this, where there's a, an air of a false willingness to participate in a conversation. While on the surface, all of these studies and arguments seem valid, when we take a closer look, take 20 minutes to find the sources of these studies and articles and where they're coming from, we see that it all has a very in favor intrinsically of the holders of the object, in this case, Austria. In other cases, England, America. In any case, no matter how you look at it, Mexico and their museums never had a fair shot. Vienna already has the object, and as far as most people are concerned, it's theirs. Boohoo. Sucks to suck. In fact, it was probably a really good PR stunt for Vienna to engage in these conversations and now have this supposedly irrefutable scientific evidence to back up why they need to keep the object. Again, a very tricky topic. Next time you go to a museum, I recommend considering how objects go to the museum, got to the museum in the first place. It's okay to ask hard questions because if we don't, who will? And on that note, that's it for today. You can follow Art History Awesome on Twitter and Instagram at ARHAwesome. You can also send an email with any art and or history related questions to arthistoryawesome at gmail.com. Finally, you can find all the art and sources mentioned in this episode at ameliarose.com. Just look for this episode's post under the Art History Awesome tab. 
Uh, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to share this episode or this whole podcast with a friend, it would be really appreciated and you would be totally awesome. Once again, my name is Amelia. And thanks for listening to Art History Awesome.